Welcome back to Compliments to the Chef, Season 6, Las Vegas, Episode 11. Oh my God, we're on 11. I, I feel like we've been only talking about this for like five seconds, and yet it's almost the end. Here we are. You know, time flies when you're with your best friend ignoring the rest of the world. Mm, that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> well, today we are here to discuss episode 11 of season six, as we said. Yes. But before we get into the episode, we have some leftovers. And by some, I mean one. Mm, that's so, pretty scant for us. I know. We always say we're getting better. And then the next episode, it's like, and we have 10. So we'll see how we do in episode 12. <laughs> Love it. But anyway, so we have one leftover. And that leftover is about Madam Natalie Portman. So <laughs> you yes, remember now? I'm remembering. The leftover that I want to talk about today is her, I would not call it an alleged affair so much as like emotional journey mm -hmm. with the American author Jonathan Safran Foyer, whose name I still can't pronounce. Right, right. I think um, that sounds right. Yeah. And I feel like he probably likes it that way. <laughs> Um, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so anyway, Natalie Portman in 2016 was having her directorial debut for the movie, uh, her director, directorial debut of the movie A Tale of Love and Darkness, which I think was a movie about like Israeli identity and like Judaism in some capacity, you know. Is she Jewish? Oh, Yes. Okay. She's the ultimate nice Jewish girl. She is. I mean, that's why all the boys I grew up with are like, oh, I would date Natalie Portman. Wow. Can bring okay. her home to mom. I didn't totally understand the article, but this article is replete with emails back and forth between Natalie Portman and Jonathan Safran Foer. And uh, it should be noted that it has long been rumored that Foer developed a huge unrequited crush on Natalie Portman in the duration of this relationship, which started with her optioning his book to become a script. Uh, and the pair have been email pen pals for over a decade. And it is widely rumored that Jonathan Safran for left his wife, whose name is uh, Nicole Krauss, another literary giant of our generation, mm -hmm. left her under the impression that Natalie was leaving her husband, Ben Millipede, who honestly, I think like just yesterday, like news of some affair that he had just came out. So Oof. very timely, Okay, but don't want to comment on that because I don't know all the details. But anyway, he was convinced Natalie was leaving her husband. He left his. And then Natalie was like, oh no, I did not leave my husband. Like, <laughs> but anyway, so these, these emails are to say pretentious is an understatement. It is the two of them opining in this like faux poetic yeah. language about like this, you know, human existence and like what it is to be a tortured artist in these days. Oh. And, and it's all email. It's all. Do they like, start it with like, per my last email? No. Even Well, so there are so many pull quotes that are incredibly cringeworthy in these emails and I highly recommend looking them up. There's a great article in the cut about this. Oh, that's but so, that for is so our viewers, our listeners, pleasure bits. I am going to let you pick one of three topics, and I will read you the quote <laughs> from that topic. So the first topic is Jonathan speaks of guinea pigs. The second topic you can choose is Jonathan asks Natalie about how freedom constrains her. <laughs> and the third, Jonathan gives a history of the Gettysburg Address. 
Okay. I'm so I'm from near Gettysburg, so I'm I'm gonna choose door number three. Okay, door number three it is. The two things that distinguish the Blue Ridge Summit in Pennsylvania are its proximity to Gettysburg. I never have followed through on my threats of a tour, but Gettysburg presence is presence is constantly felt when in the area. The innumerable signs commemorating battles, the ammunition in the antique shops, the memorials. It also exudes a ghostly aura. I feel silly writing that, but there's nothing silly or ignorable about the feeling. And it isn't just the proximity to history. It's something else, something (laughs) in the air and in the ground. Are there places where you feel a something else? That's like the perfect intro to a Ken Burns documentary. It's just like, this is an email to Natalie Portman. <laughs> I, you know they've exhausted all conversation topics when you've landed on the Gettysburg. The Gettysburg. The vibe of Gettysburg. <laughs> yeah, just general energy. I will say though, in that man's defense, um, I went on a tour of Gettysburg College, however long ago, and it is a spooky, ghosty place. Oh, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's like you're on a, you're basically on a mass grave, right? Of all of these saloon Slew yeah, soldiers. Yeah, but like half of New York City is mass graves. Like all of Fort Greene Park is a mass grave. True. But yeah, okay, honestly, the battlefield, I get, I think it's different. It's a battlefield. Yeah, let Gettysburg have it. Yeah, you know? sorry, I, I didn't mean to steal Gettysburg's <laughs> thunder. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, and because I just feel that it needs to happen, I will read Jonathan Speaks of Guinea Pigs. Okay, please. That so was bizarre. my second choice, yeah. It's almost six in the morning. The boys are still asleep. I can hear the guinea pigs stirring, but that might be the residue of a nightmare. People often refer to aloneness and writer's block as the two greatest challenges of being a novelist. In fact, the hardest part is having to care for guinea pigs. Oh, Oh, so just, yeah. Anyway, he obviously thinks that Natalie's over there getting like a big lady boner for this, which she kind of did in her responses. I will say like she gives it back in kind. Okay. 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 But I don't think it was actually a reciprocal romantic lady boner. Right. It was an intellectual boner for her. Right. Okay. But anyway, okay. This is the long tale of Natalie Natalie Portman and Jonathan Sevenfor's torrid emotional Amazing. Okay. So let's move on because that was kind of long. Uh, And let's begin. All right, Nancy, let's get into it. Episode 11, Amuse-Bouche. What is on your palate coming out of uh, this week's episode? So I am not much of a gambler. I have Vegas is of no interest to me. So I was definitely skeptical about the casino aspect of this challenge. And I was like, this can be really cheesy. But I actually thought that it lent itself to a very interesting result. And so I would say my reaction to this episode is pleasantly surprised. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, honestly, it's like it was a very necessary, required episode to have. We haven't spent a ton of time with the sort of culture of the strip. You know, we've touched on the gambling. We've had the high Mm -hmm. stakes, this and that. We've been in these casinos and these resorts but to kind of talk about them uh, in aggregate and like explore their sort of idiosyncrasies and eccentricities was very cool. I totally agree. I think we had a fun judge in the form of Nigella Lawson. Yes, absolutely. She's like a sexy like Simon Cowell. 
Oh my gosh, that is so perfectly put. I have information on her. Okay. Uh, which we'll get to when we talk about the quick fire, which is now. Let's get into it. Yeah. Quick fire was, you know, I loved this quick fire. Loved. It fun. was so cheeky, so fun. If you look, the second that we saw Padma just in a robe ordering room service, that is my nirvana. That is your energy. Big I time. love robe energy. Uh, so, and then you have these two beautiful women on repose. Oh my gosh. Like in robes, ostensibly nothing underneath. Ostensibly. Ostensibly. I mean, you know, Eli is like, <laughs> no one, I, if Mike Isabella were there, he'd be like, can I get in? <laughs> hey ladies. Yeah. I don't know. That was Gross. my terrible impression but yeah no I, I hit the thought too and like you know Padma was laying it on thick like oh but, my gosh but so was Nigella yes so okay I'm gonna get to a discussion of who Nigella Lawson is let's yeah because I, hear that. I do think that all of these comments about her general persona are very apt mm-hmm. and need to be addressed so Nigella Lawson Nigella Lucy Lawson to you Nigella Lucy Lawson is an English food writer and television cook Though Lawson has enjoyed a successful career in the culinary arts, she does she is not a trained chef and she does not consider herself to be a chef, which I thought was really interesting. That is interesting. Considering wow. that she got her start writing cookbooks. Wow. Uh, Nigella Lawson is Jewish, a nice Again, Jewish girl. A nice Jew- well, is she a nice Jewish girl? She's definitely a flirtatious she's a, Jewish she's girl. She's a nice Jewish she is, girl. Perce- her perceived overt sexuality in her presentation has led Lawson to be called the queen of food porn, which wow. really comes through on this episode. Right. Like she's putting it all out there. She's yeah. sultry. She's sexy. Yeah. She's trying to disarm the chefs, I think, with her sexuality a yeah, bit. Yeah, for sure. And it definitely, like, works, I think. Okay, that's all I've got on Nigella Lawson. But okay. I also would like to say there's one thing that Eli said about Gordon Ramsay naming a turkey after her. I looked this up. I could not find any evidence of Gordon Ramsay naming a turkey after her. I did find a video of Gordon Ramsay making her turkey recipe which apparently mm. was like a revolutionary turkey recipe. Would you like to know what the revolution? It had to be putting butter under the skin or something. Brining like that. it. Oh, okay. Yeah, something yeah. that Americans have been doing since the first Thanksgiving. Yeah, we brine our age. turkeys. Yeah. Okay. Of course, British people don't know about brining. Right. They don't know anything about flavor. That's an you attack. Said it. <laughs> That's an attack. Yeah, the, um, the, anyway, it was okay. a British evasion this Let's episode. Let's talk about the challenge itself. Yes. Um, so the challenge, of course, is... Padma, Nigella, uh, they're sitting in a tree. <laughs> they're held up in a very deluxe-looking hotel room, and judges down in the kitchen get a phone call on a corded uh, telephone and answer to Padma asking them essentially to bring them up some room service, bring them up some breakfast in bed. Uh, so we have the chefs in groups of three, essentially just like whipping together a thirty-minute. Uh, breakfast plate, breakfast plate for, for the judges. So we have group one coming out, Robin and Eli, Robin, uh, (laughs) pretty quickly narrows in on doing a blintz, maybe Mm -hmm. two blintzes. And Eli goes with a Reuben Benedict. Yeah. What, what were your thoughts on these plates, Nancy? 
Um, so immediately I am not enjoying Robin's because it has pineapple, a fruit I am mildly allergic oh, yeah. to, makes my tongue a little itchy, um, and goat cheese, which like really turns my stomach. Yeah. So um, immediately I'm not into it. She's also, of course, all over the place. Yeah. Like, and this was a dish that I don't think required someone to be all over the place. Like, I think if Michael Voltaggio were making two blintzes in a pineapple sauce, yeah, he would have done it cleanly. Like, sometimes she makes dishes like the one she made in the last episode, the veggie thing that had like 800 components. This one did not have that many components. She was just a right mess in that yeah, kitchen. Yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, classic Robin. Also, bacon added to the counter. Oh, add it. Add oh, my it. God. Throw it in the bag. Um, and then Eli's, I loved. I thought it sounded delicious. Yeah, It was really agreed. inventive with the hollandaise, the Thousand Island hollandaise. And um, I love Nigella's comment, good for a hangover. Mm-hmm. That's what you want when you're, you want. if you're phoning and getting that breakfast, odds are you're not in the best shape. Yep. Um, so I think he really fit the bill on that one. Yep. And um, yeah. So Michael Voltaggio makes uh, Cuban inspired rice and beans, bananas, eggs, and bacon. Bacon. Two Number two. bacons in the counter. I believe that maybe evens out bacon and ceviche. So we now have a tied game between the number of bacons and the number of ceviches we've neck seen this and season. Neck. Who, okay, right now. Prediction. Which one do you think is going to win? Um, I just think it's going to be bacon, mostly because I don't think that any of the – I don't think any of the challenges that we're going to see between now and the finale are going to – fit the bill for a ceviche. But I, I do think it's easier to get a bacon on the plate. I agree. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, we okay. have- Can we talk about though the moment? So the moment Michael Voltaggio takes his breakfast plate into the room with Nigella and Padma, we had this like really weird exchange where um, <laughs> yes. Nigella goes, uh, she, well, apropos sorry. of nothing? Yes, exactly. She takes a bite of Michael's dish and, and then she just, just goes-, goes the thing about breakfast is that you can eat it, eat it at any time of day. And he goes, sure. It like didn't even, <laughs> like, didn't yeah, even true. give it a, a, didn't even just try to make that easier for her. Like, yeah, I audibly so laughed weird. out loud. It was such a weird comment. And it was just like, not a comment on the food. Right. It was an odd moment. I, I really hope that that was not editing. I hope that that was exactly the response. I mean, what are you going to – you have to have some filler there because otherwise you're just sitting in silence in a robe as like a stranger But do they not you- give commentary on quick fires? Can't they be like, I love the rice? Are they not allowed to? Well, yeah, I think they are. I just – I think she said that before he she even took a bite. Oh, really? I yeah. thought she was like – yeah, you know what? She was sort of digging in. Yeah, she's she like, the thing about breakfast is you can, you have, can it have it any time, time of, day. of day. And it was like, who asked that? <laughs> who <laughs> who disagreed? I don't know. I disagree. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so moving right along uh, to Kevin. Kevin made steak and eggs. And it looked mm-hmm. delicious. I like that he really skirted the challenge. Like he made a, a dinner steak and put some eggs on it. Yeah. Like when I've had steak and eggs, it's like a really, first off, I don't really have steak and eggs, but um, my experience of it, it's like a shitty cut of meat and it's very flat. Right. He just, I think made a sirloin. That steak looked great. It looked delicious. Yeah, cooked, it looked cooked very and well. And that hash brown that he put underneath yeah. with scallions. Mwah, yeah. Delicious, Kevin. Love that man. But also noticeably- no bacon. You'd no think bacon. that Kevin would go straight for bacon on a breakfast challenge. He nah, didn't. not even. Group three, though, 
we get gotta send out an SOS because Jen's bringing us some shit get on, on a, a shingle. shingle. Um, As someone who has had shingles before, I did take offense to the name of this dish. Okay, well, as someone who grew up in Pennsylvania, I actually loved seeing the chipped beef representation. Okay. I looked up chipped beef and I was going to define it, but clearly you have some childhood it's, experience. It's basically like creamed beef. It's uh, okay. So once again, like that does not explain any more than what I currently know about this dish. <laughs> I mean, truly, there's not even more to it. Like you know the the beef that goes into making like a Philly cheesesteak. It's like that really okay, thin. Yes. It's like paper. Yeah, it's like that type of beef. With I was surprised that like, the Venetian heavy had cream and that. butter. She had, oh, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could see them maybe doing something with, I mean, that's a great point. I don't know where that came from. I'm not even going to begin to speculate. She saw it, she went for it. Um, and and she got it, mm. Yeah, she got it, mm. Yeah. So I think like meat is really kind of what you want to see, I guess, as far as mm-hmm. uh, if your name is Nigella or Pema. Yeah, but unfortunately, Brian didn't quite get that memo. He made corn and polenta, a four-minute egg, which made me giggle thinking oh, of Kendra. Oh, I know, I know. Um, I guess that we should not be calling out the number of minutes it took us to cook our eggs in a restaurant setting. Um, king crab and asparagus. And vanilla. Yeah. Which what? apparently just was disgusting. Came out <sighs> of nowhere. Yeah. And, of course, Nigella's like, that would have been a complete star without the vanilla. Yep. I don't know what <sighs> – Strange. Maybe he thought he was doing like a sweet, savory thing. Right. And may- maybe it was just going to be a little more aromatic and yeah. less on the palate. The yeah. balance was off. Yeah. So, but anyway, we have on the top of this challenge, we have Kevin mm-hmm. who, uh, suppo- who demonstrated an understanding of the challenge. And then we have uh, Eli, whose yeah. dish was witty. On the bottom, we have Robin. Okay. Just a quick thing about Robin here. When Padma said, like, we didn't like it, she goes, I was not proud of that dish. She says that every single time she gets any criticism, just, I was not proud of what I put on the plate today. Yeah. At a certain point, like, cook food that you're proud of, defend your food. Yeah. And, like, if neither of those things are true, then get out of this competition. I'm starting yeah. – this episode for me was a real turning point for Robin. I feel like I've been on her – or I haven't necessarily been on her side, but – I have empathized with her yeah. and felt that Innocent she Innocent until proven guilty. Exactly. Yeah. And I also felt like she was getting – she was wrongfully getting this like enormous amount of ire from the other chefs. And this episode, I was like, I'm done with this. I was not proud of what I put on the dish well, today. And I think this goes back to the point that I was making a few episodes ago when I said I think she has really good natural instinct, but she lacks the vocabulary and the training to yeah. talk about it. And so when she is – when her – food is criticized, she actually can't point to what failed about it in the same way she can't talk about what will succeed. Yes. So I just think that that's just an instance of it working in the the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, But I agree. I totally agree. I just felt like I saw that blintz and the the thing that I thought of first was it actually reminded me of that moment from Devil Wears Prada where Anne Hathaway is just like, it's just a blue sweater. And she launches into the whole thing about how cerulean cerulean blue like became this whole blah, 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 blah. Like that blintz to me was like the manifestation of decades of like culinary invention just funneling its way down into just the the basest example of just shitty brunch on a plate yes it looked awful and just the i really can't get over that i wasn't proud because every dish like every there are so many chefs Mm -hmm. who just put their heart out there 
And I feel like she never really owns up to it, which is a bit frustrating. But okay. Uh, Also on the bottom, we have Brian because of the vanilla. Yep. But we have Eli as the winner. Shock. Not shocking. Not shocking. I think he did a good job. Good. Yeah. Exciting. Yes. And he ends up winning. uh, And what does he win? He gets the only uh, recipe that'll be featured in the Top Chef cookbook from this season. Okay. I mean, yeah. Can we talk about that? (laughs) I looked up this cookbook. First off, Kevin had the funniest line where he goes, great prize, Eli. Like, no one cares. Absolutely (laughs) no one cares. After immunity is off the table. I mean, he got a whole kitchen of GE appliances. He's got Cathlon, whatever. He's He's made like like $30,000. Yeah, he's made a lot of money. Yeah, he could let that one go. Yes. Okay. But I looked up the Top Chef Quick Fire cookbook to see if it's still in existence. Now, there is only one copy left on Amazon, ladies and gentlemen. How much do you think it costs? I bet it costs $178. $29. Okay. <laughs> you were off by orders of magnitude. Okay, lots. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just a There's few, only one there's copy? There's only one left in stock, at least on Amazon. Okay, so maybe they restart. Um, but okay, re- just two reviews. We're going to get a good review and a bad review. Which one do you want first? Bad review. Bad review. I was disappointed to find that a good portion of the book was dedicated to fan focus with pages of info showing like a fan magazine. Disappointing for me, but if you're into that, I guess you'll be happy with it. I mean, homie. why are you buying a top <laughs> yeah. chef fire cookbook if not for the fandom aspect? Maybe he bought it and didn't realize like top chef was a thing. Yeah. And then he realized like, like he was the top chef. Yeah. It's like buy this and be a top chef. Oh I don't know. Oh my gosh. Um, What's okay, the, the positive? The though? good review. Aside for some spelling errors, a great book. Wow, there's spelling errors. Spelling errors. That's kind of funny, actually. Hilarious. But let's move on to our elimination challenge. Yes. Okay. Walk us through details there, because then I would love to spend a little bit of time just on a quick history lesson of the the Vegas Strip. Ooh, I'm excited because I really have no knowledge nor an appreciation for it. So I hope this changes both of those things. Well, now I have knowledge and not necessarily an appreciation for it. (laughs) Okay. So our challenge today is the chefs are drawing knives to see which casino they will be assigned. They will spend a day at that casino. And afterward, they have to create a dish inspired by the casino slash hotel in some way. Right. And I love a knife draw. A lot of these casinos I've literally never heard of in my life. Again, never been to Vegas, so there might be a reason. Yeah. But there were like casino or circus circus. What? I've heard of it, but I can't, I don't know if it was like, I've heard of it because I saw this episode years ago or what? Like The one I've heard of iconically, the golden nugget Vanderpump rules where Tom and Ariana had their first kiss when Tom was still dating Kristen. Wow. Um, I know you're not in the VPR I know, I'm not school a of things. Girly. Um, yes, that was the, honestly, looking back, the golden nugget is the beginning of something that was great until it really wasn't. Mm. Don't get me started. Tell us about the Las Vegas strip. Yeah, please. honestly, Nancy. So, you know, I, I figured like we've gotten this far into the season and we really haven't talked about Vegas as a city. Um, Good riddance. But lay yeah, it well, on it's me not if going you must. anywhere, but yeah. Um, so, yeah, so Las Vegas. History here kind of starts in like the early 1800s, at least as far as white people are concerned. Um, so, there's a group of explorers that are led by a Spanish uh, merchant, and they come upon this area towards California that is the ancestral lands of this Native American tribe called the uh, Paiute. So the Paiute population essentially had uh, 
settled around this area that was extremely verdant and lush and really kind of an oasis of sorts in the Mojave Desert. And, you know, that was what inspired the the name of Las Vegas, which is the Meadows in Spanish, apparently. So Las Vegas, uh, over the next few decades, we see the Mormons arrive. Classic. Uh, so they're trying to convert people, whatever, whatever. I mean, damn, wasn't Mormonism like just invented like five years before this? Like, Yeah, they, but they were kicked out of upstate New York pretty quickly. Okay, well. So I mean, I'm not surprised that they made it out west yeah. that soon. So they arrive after they get kicked out of the last party. And basically, you know, this sort of oasis that the Paiute uh, were settled in remained a bit of a mystery for a while until it wasn't. They... This is largely driven by the fact that there was gold and silver found. And so there's this big population boom, this big sort of rush to the area of miners. And you have this huge sort of uh, just population dissension onto the city. And at the turn of the 20th century, this area became sort of a oasis town on the way to California. Um, and it was sort of like a place where people would get waylaid and basically illegal gambling started to kind of like pick up. And then very famously Vegas, or excuse me, Nevada was the first state to legalize gambling. And that was in 1931. So after that happens, everything else pretty much is like a domino effect, right? So around the same time, we also see the Hoover dams getting built. So that's bringing a ton of uh, labor and manpower and men to this area who basically now have all this cash to blow. And so entrepreneurs are also coming to the city to like meet that demand and say like, come spend it in my casino. So we see this like rapid growth of this casino culture. Um, I think the kind of where we start to see the strip actually come into shape is around World War II. There is a cop actually named Guy McAfee, and he comes to Vegas around 1939 he actually flees Los Angeles um, for corruption charges or something da- like that. He puts classic. down roots. Classic. Uh, and he actually sort of names it. It's almost like a temporary name. He calls it the Strip, and that's in- it was inspired by his love of the Sunset Strip in L.A. So that's where the namesake comes from. Uh, we start to get into the sort of Vegas that we know today as far as residencies and u- huge resorts around the 50s where – the Sands opens. And so the Sands is where Liberace actually was the first sort of celebrity musical caricature to start a a residency in Vegas. Mm. So this idea catches on. Then you see Frank Sinatra coming and the whole Rat Pack, and they really just like create this persona of Vegas. You know, you have the mob running a lot of shit behind the scenes, and that kind of persists throughout the 60s and 70s. Interesting. And then finally, finally, uh, we kind of meet the Las Vegas that we spend a lot of time in uh, in this season of Top Chef. So that's like all these like kind of – kitschy, over-the-top resorts, starting with, in 1989, uh, Stephen Wynn's Mirage Resort and Casino. Mm -hmm. So that's really what kind of set- Home of the David Guetta Pool Party. You know it. That sets things in motion. And then quickly after that, really in the 90s and the 2000s, basically all of the resorts that we see in this episode- Wow, that's like in our lifetime. Pop up, yeah. And so- you know, a lot of the conversation now, if you check out, you know, r slash Vegas on Reddit, for instance, a lot of people 
kind of lamenting this this turning of the tides away from the sort of kitschy history of Vegas, the sort of themed uh, resorts and hotels that we see in this episode towards this very kind of cookie cutter, over the top, like glam, clubby culture. Uh, so yeah, so that's the strip in a nutshell. And Interesting. so I feel like it is also trying to go through a bit of a rebrand right now. Oh yeah, with the whole weird. Like, well, with like the F1 stuff, like yeah. it's trying to be a little more glamorous yeah. than like debaucherous. Yeah. Of course, when we grew up was the tagline, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, like right. greatest marketing of all right. time. But I do think that in this like new decade, they are trying to rebrand it to be a bit classier, a bit more luxurious. Yeah. So anyway, so all to bring us to- Thank you for that history. All to course. bring us through this challenge. The challenge. So Nancy, run us through who is paired with what, because then I want to yep. put a question to you. So, okay. but anyways, catch us up. We have Brian Voltaggio, Mandalay Bay. Eli, Circus Circus, as I said before, I've never heard of that. Michael Voltaggio, New York, New York, two double names. Kevin gets the Mirage, Jen got Excalibur, and Robin got the Bellagio, the famous Bellagio, mm -hmm. which she says she knows nothing about, which is crazy because I truly don't know anything about Las Vegas, and I know the Bellagio. Well, and Everyone knows the Bellagio. Ocean's Eleven had just come out like five yeah, years before and like, this. Those fountains are iconic. Right. And that the is, fountains, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah. That to me was just crazy. She was like, I don't really know anything about it. If there is one casino yeah. in Vegas, you know, it's the Bellagio. Okay. So here's my question to you. Um, if you could pair up each chef with one of these hotel casino situations, who are you pairing with which? Question. Follow up question. Are, am I saying like which casino suits their personality or I, like which one would I like to see? The like am I fucking is, with yeah. them? No, I, I think it like which one is the best fit based on the type of chef they are, the, the way that they operate, okay. their personality, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. I would pick <laughs> Circus Circus would go to Robin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why is that? Because she's a clown. Like, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> come on. Like, she's totally all over true, the place. True, true. It's a little bit everything's like bursting out from the yeah, scenes. And yeah. And she's like, oh, I'll try this and I'll try that and let me juggle this. Like, she is circus, circus. Okay. Okay. So that's number one. Um, Mandalay Bay, I think I would give to, I don't know. Hold on, Mandalay Bay. Mm -hmm. It'll probably be the one that's just left over. Jen, I would give New York, New York. She's mm. she's a bad bitch from the East Coast. That's true. Like she's got the edge. Um, I would give the Mirage to Michael Vataggio. Okay. Because I think it's got a bit of like an aura to it. Yes. I, I, would, I would agree with that. I one. would give Excalibur to Kevin. Agree. I would give okay, so what's left? We have the Bellagio and Mandalay um, Bay. Mandalay Bay. I would give Eli Mandalay Bay only because I want to give Brian the Bellagio. I love it. I actually totally agree with that. I had initially gone um, Jen with Mandalay Bay because of the fish. Oh, fish. But, Silly, Nancy. But I think both really make sense. Um, okay. And then that would put Eli in um, – which one did I give Jen? I gave Jen New York, New York. New York. New York. He doesn't I don't deserve feel it. it. No. I don't feel it. All right. Him. Let's is stay the course. Yeah. So anyways, but let's talk about uh, each of these <laughs> that folks. That was really a so, great – we see, Activity. I love it. We see the chefs have to do a little bit of like homework. So they have to go and visit yes. these. And you know what I was thinking resorts. while they were, they must have been so happy to have this day right. alone. Like 
in normal, in plain clothes. They're just walking around, getting to experience something, getting like served. Yes. I'm sure there is a modicum of downtime. I won't say a lot of downtime, but like I'm sure there are moments where cameras are down. But like you see them just like get dropped off by one of the producers yeah. in a car. Like it's probably the most normal have a fun day. day. Yeah, Take like, a little lunch fail. It's probably the most normal day they've had in yeah. weeks. I, was I love that you're always looking them. out for like their amount of free time. Well, because it's crazy. I mean, <laughs> this was the peak of like manipulative reality TV. Yeah. And you know they're just getting fucked with behind the scenes. Yeah. So I- <laughs> to spend a day alone must be the greatest gift even if you have to do it in a casino yeah yeah i okay so let's hide in the bathroom let's like do walk through some of the highlights of that exploration because for me the thing that i absolutely loved was seeing jen go into excalibur and like watching the the jousting or whatever was happening and there was maybe i actually don't know if i saw anybody in the audience with her her row was completely emptied out i have to think it was for filming reasons i know i just like the 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 story i'll tell myself is like there was Went to an empty, well, yeah. it was the middle of the day on what god knows what day of the week it right. was you didn't need to spend that was one of the places that like you kind of didn't even need to go it was, it was like oh, yeah. okay i get it like get the prompt bits tell me what you thought about robin's visit to the bellagio okay so her walk-in fascination with the chihuly dale chihuly who me um she's like that stoner mom who's like i love art like she just sits in a caftan all day in arizona somewhere i yes i i not to say it was like that hotel was wasted on her but it was wasted uh, on her yeah, kind of was and the fact that she focused on the chihulis and not like the glitz and glam of the bellagio right come on i think it was it, i think if you're gonna narrow in on that it has to be part of a larger narrative I think it's for sure a valid thing to hit on in your dish. Sure. But to go real hardcore on it, I think missed you you missed yeah, something. Yeah, and then she also missed the we'll get to it, but she missed the element that yeah, was hardcore she missed the, in the very chihuly. thing that was like well, meant to be. As it. someone who has done my own chihuly appreciation. Yes. So just for folks listening, so Nancy actually dressed up as a chihuly sculpture for a Halloween probably like five or six years ago. So yeah, this is our first rodeo. I made like five of my friends blow up balloons and like tape them onto me. And, and stuffed you take, into a, a cab. Did not take into consideration that I was going to have to take an Uber to the party. And all the balloons on my backside just popped <laughs> immediately upon sitting down. But she just... I think she missed the mark so much. She latched onto one thing and didn't really take in the whole experience. Well, again, she is she's saying, I'm gonna do something I haven't done before. Stop, Stop doing, doing stuff that. you've never done before. Stop it. It hasn't worked. You've been on the bottom. She, I think we need to double check this leftovers. How many times in a row she has been on the bottom in the past few episodes? I think she has been on the bottom yeah. at least the past three episodes. I think – no, I actually think there was one in there that she wasn't – She escaped? Down there, but let's double check that yeah, for we'll next double time. Yeah, Maybe um, restaurant where she wasn't. Okay, so we talked, Mike. Da, da, da. Okay, Kevin uh, in the Mirage. I honestly didn't have any real notes for that. He didn't have any notes really either. Yeah. Um, Eli and Circus Circus. Eli, <laughs> I think that we need to combine Eli and the Circus Circus with Eli after being at Circus Circus and Michael Voltaggio being like, why are you such a curmudgeon? Like, you have the best one. Yeah. It's so fun. Eli just refused to get into this challenge in a way that I thought was like, so like, why are you dying on this hill? Yeah. 
I mean, he refused to get into it and then took it the most literal, literal of way. any of them. Yeah. So and let's kind of start talking about the food because I think we kind of exhausted everything. Brian goes to Mandalay Bay. He spends a lot of time like yep. thinking about sustainability and fish, etc. Classic Brian. Could have predicted um, that. So, okay. So going back to Eli. So Eli's dish is a caramel apple and peanut soup with raspberry foam. Um, and macerated popcorn. And macerated popcorn. So we have peanuts. We have popcorn. We have pe- uh, caramel apple. Um, it's it's the it's a an idea which in the right hands, I bet could be a really cool thing. And I think that's honestly what he was going for. And Kevin for. alluded to that. Yeah. Kevin was like, "You have the kernel of a great idea, but this is one of those dishes that takes months to figure out how to balance. Yeah. You have to make it. You have to study it." We have to test it on people. And Eli just – I mean, even when he said it before they got to judges' table, I was like, that sounds disgusting. Yeah. In my notes, I said, can we please talk about Eli's dish? Does this sound appealing at all? Does any element of – Right. Was it a dessert? I don't know. Was it meant to be a dessert? It I can't tell. It seems like a smoothie almost. Yeah. It It was so unclear. It, it was – And was it – was he – did he keep saying pink dome or pink foam? I think he was referring to the pink dome at the casino that he made oh, out into of a foam. foam. Okay, that was really confusing me because yes. I was like, I'm not seeing any dome. Yeah. Um, and then let's other dishes that we can talk about um, that were maybe not as appealing to us. Robin's dish, a panna cotta, which I think we've now seen three panna cottas this season and all of them have been very lackluster. Overly gelatinous too. Overly gelatinous and her chihuly sugar. She's like, well, I'm not a master sugar worker. Then don't do it in like <laughs> round eleven of Top Chef. Yeah, I have this no is, mercy on that. This is the that. time when you are getting sent home not for bad dishes, but for tiny mistakes. Yeah, and she just made a terrible dish. Right, right. Like this is not the time, my girl. Yeah. Unfortunately, other low uh, dish. on the bottom dish, Jen. Jen with New York Strip red wine reduction. Uh, she went with a bigger bite to do a little nod to mm-hmm. medieval times. Um, I think that conceptually this dish was great. Agree. Um, but execution was flawed. I think whatever she did, like the meat didn't get tender enough. Well, did you also catch when Nigella was like, you know, everybody else had like tender meat, but I needed Excalibur to cut it. Like she kind of did say that some people got a well yeah, so bite. Okay, so let's talk about the dishes that judges really liked. Yeah. I would love to just start with Michael Valtaggio because I think he had, first of all, he had a lot of great quotes this episode, but this one in particular, I, as someone who lives in New York, really loved. Like he took his inspiration from New York, New York, of course, and he's explaining his, so he did a uh, boneless chicken wing confit with like a cold disc of blue cheese. And he's explaining it to the judges, and he says, chicken wings, New York, New York fighters, uh, firefighters, probably something they like to eat. Like, that was the through line to get from, I went to New York, New York, to support the firefighters to, like, they probably eat chicken wings. Buffalo wings from Buffalo, New York. Famously not New York, New York. I just know he's like probably probably they something probably made. Eat wings. Yeah, I was like, I mean, I could think of five hundred things that are more like New York, York centric, but yes. I mean, it worked for him. The judges liked it. They liked that. I'm sure, cool, it was tasty, refreshing. You know, blue yes. cheese. But also on the top, we have um, uh, Kevin 
who made a, I, I thought his dish sounded so good. I would Every eat time. that dish in a heartbeat. It sounded delicious. Um, it was lightly cured sockeye salmon with compressed slaw and tomato cucumber broth. Mm. I would guzzle that broth yeah. up. And you saw everyone knocking it back. I think it looked like such an A-plus dish. Uh, okay, so that was talking about Kevin. And then the last kind of like top dish we had was... Brian. Brian, with another halibut. Another halibut in bouillabaisse consomme, which was clear. I love bouillabaisse. I've actually... I'm new to the bouillabaisse because, again, shellfish. Right, but, um, right. But I do like it. I'll eat it. I think it's divine. I'll try it. Sometimes you, I'll try anything. I really will. Sometimes you get that like a little piece of toast on top of the bouillabaisse. That's the good stuff. Ooh, yeah, that's baby. the good stuff. It's delicious. So yeah, top to be clear, we have Kevin, Michael, Brian. And we did kind of glaze over the scale of this uh, challenge. Oh, so they yeah, had to you. cook for 175 people Oof. at the World Market Center, which Eli described as, quote, George Orwellian, um, but that it offered them a good view of like the old and new strip. So do you think that the way like it's sort of a a meme about guys like today who use Kafka-esque as a verb? To like yeah. sound smart. Uh-huh. Do you think Orwellian was like the early aughts version of Kafka? It's, it's the early something version, but that yes. definitely was a yeah, uh, no doubt, <laughs> no doubt. But yeah, a huge task to make these like essentially amuse bouche, like one bite plates yeah. for 175 people. My gosh, one. I yeah. freak out when I have to cook for like myself. That's not I true. I like cooking for myself. Um, but all to say, huge. But we have our winner. Michael Voltaggio. And he gets a giant bottle of wine. Juggalato. You need. (laughs) Turlato, more like Juggalato. Turlato, more like ton. (laughs) That's not good. We just love Turlato. It's just to me the funniest in Turlato. Turlato. All right. Well, anyways, he gets a big. I mean, that is a little bit of a slap. I I will say the challenges or, or the prizes this episode kind of comparatively to the rest of the season they are running out of uh, ideas something maybe fell through i don't know what but like homie got like a shout out in the quickfire cookbook that has you know people in the comments Michael being like did this also and- win like a trip to the vineyard oh i, I missed it's, that okay it's, but like really i don't know why he was just like oh okay <laughs> he is pretty one note i'm about sure you can prizes. take the cash value of any of these things I wonder. I don't know. On other game shows you can, but... Oh, interesting. We'll look into the rules. Yeah, we can look into that. But so, yeah. And then as we said, on the bottom, we have Jen, Robin, and Eli. I really love that the lack of familiarity with 17th century courtesans and medieval cooking yeah. was really what did these folks in this episode. I was like... He was like, I don't know. Tom says to Jen, I don't know if you know much about uh, medieval cooking, but they put spices all over it to really mask the flavor of whatever. And I was like- Yeah, how rank it was. Sorry I I missed that chapter. (laughs) Sorry I didn't give you rank meat and then cover it up (laughs) with a ton of seasoning. How seriously did you want me to take this? I I could not believe kind of the audacity of Tom to lob that criticism at Jen. The criticism about the cook of the meat, valid. The criticism about not knowing medieval cookery, invalid. Yes. yes. No, thank you, Tom. Um, the the feedback around the quivering thigh yeah, is for on. Robin. As for Robin. And that felt, I mean, now that we know Nigella's persona, it's like shock and awe. No one needs to know about 17th century courtesans in a thigh. No. And I think one thing that I will give mm, Toby is he 
is correct in in saying, and this is what we were chatting about earlier, which is she just keeps reaching for these things that at the time were very, I guess, outside of her level, like mm-hmm. technical approach. It was they were too technically difficult, and yeah. you know she tried to do not one but two different two things she's never done before. So she didn't get the sugar work on the plate, which was the main point of yep. having the Chululi inspiration. And then Tom's like, no, there's two things you didn't know here because you also didn't know how to do the panna cotta. Yeah. Um, and here's what I will say. And then, I mean, we got to talk about Eli. He got, I think, some of the most brutal criticism oh of the entire season. Here are some quotes that I love. I really didn't like the flavors in this dish. I personally would never want to eat that again. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. In in and his his feedback was instantaneous. Like they took a bite of it and at they were like, the they event. Were there was a, a moment of silence as they all like looked like who's gonna bite this first? And then you see Padma eat it. I don't like that at all. And just done. done. Nigella was like waiting for her zinger. I don't know. I don't remember what hers was, but yeah, it was they did not like it. Instantaneous dislike. Other criticisms that we heard. I'd rather eat sawdust. Yeah. Oh, you could if you lived in uh, medieval times, the Victorian era, because yeah. they would put sawdust in bread. Did you learn that in one of your videos? I did. That's the one fact. <laughs> That's the that one stuck. thing you remember. Yeah, they would do it instead of bread flour. Um, and then the last uh, criticism of Eli we have is terrible execution, really bad flavors. Yep. Everything is wrong with this dish. Now, I have a bit of a controversial opinion. I think Eli should have gone home this hmm. episode. I also think that Robin should have gone home the Natalie Portman episode. Yeah. But I think Eli's offense was worse than Robin's. She made something edible. Yeah. Eli's was across the board repulsive, revolting. Yeah, damn. I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, I think think that they may be equally repulsive. It's just that the ingredients were more offensive and thus easier for us as someone not – eating it to really rally behind and be like, oh, bad decisions. Yeah. Whereas a bad panna cotta is disgusting. Like a, f- a firm and you didn't have the sugar. I-, I just don't even know what her dish was aside from, from the sugar work. That. Yeah. yeah. So, but, you know, I know famously, at least up until this point of where we're at season 20, they are, it- it's resets every episode, but I yeah. have to imagine that they're just like, okay. Well, yeah, they're also done with her Michigas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodbye. I I, I was not sorry to see her leave at this point in the competition. Right. It had been enough of like this plot line of and Robbins, you know, by the skin of her yes. whatever. The thing that is disappointing is I would have loved to see, for instance, like Ash Merriman yeah, at oh, this point. I would have I loved agree. to see like multiple more episodes of mm-hmm. her cooking. Yes. Or – Jeez, who else have we lost that have just had, was gone just too a soon? Fun time, yeah. Hashtag gone too soon. Um, but yeah, so we just we love Ashley. Yeah, like do. I also wish that she had gotten this far. Like I agree with all the criticism. Robin did not deserve to get this far. I don't think she deserved to be treated like dirt for no, this long absolutely not. for getting this far. But it was her time to go. I'm happy she's gone. But I do think Eli had a more egregious performance in this episode. I yeah. do. Um, but anyway, um, now that we know that Robin is gone, we are going to do a little, where are they now? Let's do it. I am, I'm, I will say of all the, where are they now? I have been most looking forward to this one. Okay. Robin Leventhal, nice Jewish girl, a theme. Mm-hmm. Instagram handle is 
Jen63839. That's weird. Okay. Right? Keep going. Yeah. No, it is. I'm waiting for there yeah. to be a punchline. There's no punchline. I just thought that was so strange. Oh, okay. That her Instagram handle is Jen with a bunch of numbers. Like, did a robot create that? Yeah. I mean, I don't even know that Instagram does like automatic usernames. But why Jen? Maybe it's like her daughter or... So weird. Anyway, Robin Leventhal, bio, chef, artist, teacher. Life is delicious. Keep an open heart to all the beauty around us. At Crave Ceramics. Okay. You go to click on Crave Ceramics. Uh There is no Crave Ceramics account on Instagram. Instead, uh, you go to Crave Clay, which is different. So, I mean, there's nothing really wrong with that. She clearly changed the name of the business, but did not update her bio. Right. Which is interesting because- The scoundrel. The scoundrel. So, she is not a restaurant chef anymore. Okay. Um, I couldn't really tell. Like, she has photos of very good-looking food on her Instagram. It does not appear to be in a restaurant setting. It looks more like home cook stuff. But I really couldn't get a read on, like, where she's making this food if it's- for herself, if she has like a catering right. company, I can't tell. I don't think she has a catering company because the only thing she's promoting on her page is Crave Clay. Um, or sorry, Crave Ceramics. And uh Crave Ceramics is quote, chef made ceramics inspired by nature for table and home. Um, it does post with some regularity, like not every week, but no, the most recent post was a <laughs> month ago. So and they were like pretty consistently once a month. Okay. So like she's keeping it updated. It's not like a project that she started five years ago that she made an Instagram account for. Right. None of these accounts really have many followers, but she seems to have sort of wandered off into the abyss. And that is all I can say. One thing I'll say about her elimination that gets back to my point very early in the episode was she said she was proud of herself for making it this far. And I'm sure she was proud of herself. But for someone who every single episode said, I'm not proud of what I put on the dish today, pick a lane. Yeah. Are you proud of your performance or not? So Robin is sort of out of the picture. Smell you later. Sorry. I know you were, it was a highly anticipated one, but that's about it. The ceramics look pretty. That's cool. You know what? I, I'm, it's cool that she's doing something she enjoys doing. She said she's an artist first. That's sick. Wish her well. I hope she's still doing the Pilates. Um, but Nancy, okay. Uh, Cholule inspired panna cotta. Would you eat that? Okay, I actually don't think I've ever had panna cotta. Really? Yeah. Have you had like creme brulee or flan? I've yeah, Are they essentially the same thing. Creme brulee is like creamier, flan is like more gelatinous. I don't yeah. know. I'm sure there's different shades to it. I, it's not my favorite kind of dessert. Would I eat it? Maybe, but yeah. probably no. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a no on it. It's not my dessert at all. Yeah, I do like weird textures, but. Not hyper yes, gelatinous. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't seem as inedible to me as some other dishes that have been eliminated. But um, no, I don't think I would eat it. Mm, okay. I don't. Well, good. Well, so that brings us kind of to the last segment here, which is our judgy, judgy table. table. Do you want to go first? Uh, you know what? I'm going to be honest. Like I – you know what? I will go first. Um, Please. I do have a judgy table. It's a little bit of like a reflection of everything here. Okay, Bits. Your judgy table starts now. Okay. My judgy table is feeling like they're sort of undervaluing the prompt at judges table. Like that the theme or the challenge is getting a little bit 
eschewed in favor of whose dish was most delicious, which I fully think matters. I just would like to hear a little bit more about how someone creatively rose to the occasion or didn't. At this point, it feels like almost a light suggestion when they're giving challenges. And I'm not seeing, with the exception of Tom being like, hey, Jen, you you obviously don't know anything about medieval cooking. I just feel like, I don't know, none of it really felt like much of the conversation at judges panel. I feel that way a little bit this season overall. Not a super strong one, p- pretty pretty mild as far as judgy tables go, but just an observation. I think that is a really astute observation. That's something that comes into play a lot in later seasons of like, yeah, but they didn't adhere to the challenge. Yeah, which I love. Yes, I love. I, love. I think that's honestly part of the evolution of Top Chef and part of the leveling of Top Chef that um that interview I quoted from Pack Your Knives, we love you, Pack Your Knives, uh, with the head producer, uh, where she was saying like everyone needs to play by the rules. I think that probably factors into mm-hmm. that element of judging in yeah. the more contemporary seasons of Top Chef. Like adhering to the challenge is a criteria. Yep. And yeah, it does feel like they're kind of just like doing what they want. Light suggestion is a perfect um example of this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because if they really adhered to the challenge, then Robin would have been out at pork and pino. Right. Where it's like she really didn't give a pork dish. It was yeah. like this thin piece of pork. And sure, Ashes like was a bit clammy, but like he put a piece of pork, pork on the plate. Yeah. And I guess like maybe in favor of the decision to send her home this time, Eli adhered way yes. more to the challenge. Yes. Actually, yes. probably yes. more than anybody with the exception of Jen. Yes. Who- and you know what? It's a really, it's a point well taken. Yeah. I mean, I need to factor that into my decision making. Yeah. Um, yes. I. Yeah. She completely, Robin completely disregarded the challenge this episode. Yeah. I think that's a great observation. Ugh, I love that. Thank you. Love that. Um, okay. So let me get ready here because we want to hear your judges table and your minute starts now. Blue cheese dressing. Oh, yes. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And there are a few reasons why I don't like it. One, I don't like blue cheese. Easy as that. Mm-hmm. Two, when I was in college and I worked at Al's Deli, famously, shout out to Al's Deli, which very unfortunately, Bob, the owner of Al's Deli, passed away this year. Oh. And it really hit me hard. And his brother, unfortunately, had to close Al's Deli in the wake of his death. It's been very sad at Al's Deli. But there was a famous blue cheese saw or blue cheese dressing on a roast beef sandwich at Al's Deli. And um, I really don't like blue cheese. I don't like the smell, any of it. And when I was late to work, I was forced to make the blue cheese dressing as punishment. Wow. And so I have like really bad associations with, and it smelled because it was blue cheese, sour cream, Worcestershire sauce, like every stinky thing in one bowl and I would be like gagging in oh the back and whenever, and then at the end of the day when I had to clean up the tubs and like you put the hot water in the thing that the blue cheese dressing was in, I would like have to excuse myself. I thought it was so nauseating. So I just needed a moment to say like, no, thank you on blue cheese. Okay. Yeah. And that's all. And that's all I've got. No, I love it. I mean, I, I, I don't love, well, no, I love blue cheese. I love blue cheese. <laughs> I'm like, I don't love, well, yeah, yeah, that, I yeah, love it. Maybe. And that's allowed. That's fine. That is allowed. I have a bit, you know, John C. Riley slash JK Simmons, like whiplash with blue cheese. And that's that. <laughs> and that's all there is. That's all there is. And that's all there is for this, for this episode, episode today. We had a lot of fun talking about just like the, the kitschier side of Vegas. Fun, um, fun, fun. And we're getting into the home stretch here. 
Um, we are so excited. Next week, we're going to be talking about episode 12 which is, um, I guess you could call it like the semifinals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, right before they go, where we have our last elimination before the finale. And so um, thank you for sticking around. Thank you so much. And for those who are still listening, just a quick teaser. We do want to just say that we have a super special guest lined up for our last oh episode this gosh. season before we uh, start covering season 21. Um, so Nancy, do we announce it now? No, 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 no. We're going to keep teasing it. Well, you can follow us on Instagram. We will definitely give an early sneak peek into who that person is. Uh, you can find us at compliments to the chef pod on Instagram. And if you've been listening, please give us a rating or a review on Apple or Spotify. We would love to just get your support there. And until next time, this is compliments Compliments to to the the chef. chef. Bye. (laughs) 